0: Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rablick. Thank you so much for joining me for this particular podcast. Those of you who have followed the series of podcasts would know that I've spoken to a a few interesting candidates, some independents and others, who were standing in the election uh, this year and running for the federal parliament. My guest today is no less interesting. She is Celeste Liddell. She's running for the Greens. Uh, she's a writer. She's been an activist. She's a unionist. She's got a whole heap of stuff she's done. I'll get her to explain that in a second. Uh, she's also standing for the seat of Cooper, uh, which is sort of in a in a suburban Melbourne seat. She will explain all of that to us in a moment. We'll explore a bunch of stuff, and no doubt. Uh, no, doubt explore some issues with First Nations as well. Celeste, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much
1: for having me, Tom.
0: Uh, did, you know, it'll, be, it'll be great to hear what you've got to say. Now, before we get on to issues of substance and why you're running for the election, etc., uh, there will be those people who um, either don't know you at all or only know you from your Social media presence, which can which can be somewhat colourful at times, uh, <laughs> but they they won't know you you as a person. So, what? How would you describe your your career um, in the first instance to somebody, um, as if it was written on an envelope? Like, what are the key What are the key milestones for you?
1: Yeah, no worries. Um, well. You know, before I begin, too, I just wanted to acknowledge that I'm sitting here on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and paying my respects to their elders past and present. Um, the first thing that I would I would tell people about myself is that I'm an Arunda woman. So my traditional lands are um, uh, Mbantua or Alice Springs and then east and southeast of there. Um, so I'm a traditional landowner from Central Australia, but I've lived, um, I was born in Canberra, um, and I've lived in Melbourne now for 30 years, um, 30 years this January, actually. Um, my career is, is mixed. So for the last um, 11 years, I've been an organiser with the National Tertiary Education Union. Um, Prior to working um, as a union organiser, or sorry, national Indigenous organiser specifically, um, prior to working in the union movement, I actually worked in the higher education sector. So, I worked in Indigenous student support and recruitment, um, assisting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students to get into uni. And... um, succeed in their studies through uni. Um, and the I, I worked first at Victorian College of the Arts and then at Melbourne University proper. So um I I'm what else about me? I'm a writer and social commentator. So most recently up until um I was pre-selected I had a column with um Eureka Street but I've also had columns with um, with Fairfax back in the day when they had Daily Life and with Um with The Guardian. Um, and I've written for a number of other publications like ABC, SBS, Um, News Limited, G, uh, so many now. I've actually lost lost um track. So I'm a writer and social commentator, um, and I have been. well over a decade ever since i i started my blog um about 10 years ago called rantings of an aboriginal feminist um which got noticed by the media and so i i ended up writing within the media um yeah so so general activist um huge fan of the live music scene in melbourne um you know Multiple university graduate, so who I've now graduated from La Trobe, Melbourne Uni, and Monash. Um, so I'm a repeat student, and yeah, that's that's probably me in a nutshell.
0: And there's a lot, there's a lot you've done. There's a lot, you know, we could dive into. <laughs> but I guess part of the purpose of having a chat here is the federal election. And what fascinated me in the reason of one of the you was yeah, the the choice you've made to stand for, for, for the Greens, particularly in in, in the place you've you been. Can you give us the background? Uh, what motivated you to to stand for an election? Because it's it's one thing to to write columns and, and then comment and, and poke people on, on social media, which is all good fun. But standing for election means you're prepared to, to serve. It's a, there's a degree of uh, greater gravity to it. How did you get to that decision?
1: And, and this is a little bit of a long story, Tom, so if you'll indulge me a little bit, I'll try and make it as as condensed as I can. Yeah. But um yeah, as you said, I've been engaged in the in the public sphere and the political sphere for a really long time. And I've repeatedly said, um, and <laughs> a lot of people know this, that that there is no way in the world that I would consider ever running for politics. But but something did change. Um and and I think that um the two th- key things that I would say changed my mind were, um, were COVID and the series of lockdowns, and seeing community disparities um, get bigger and bigger. Um, you know, and and wanting. Um, Oh, and and the penny dropping for me, um, I guess, with regards to realizing that there are a handful of people um, in this in this society who make decisions that impact the lives of millions. Um, so, and and the the decisions that they make were impacting the lives of millions. So, um, I decided that you know. Putting my name in the mix from that perspective was important. Um, the other big reason, big driver for me was that I have lived in this seat in Cooper, um, which was known as Batman, um, and they got renamed after an incredible Yorta man, William Cooper. Um, I can talk about him a little bit in a bit, but, um, you know, for, well, well since 1997, with a small break of a couple of years in the middle of that, um, and in the entire time that I've been in this seat, um, you know, and indeed the entire the entire time that this seat, well, not the entire time, since the 1930s bar a couple of years, this seat has been held by the Labor Party. It used to be the safest um, seat in the country, Labor or Liberal. And until about a decade ago, um, that remained the case. But the Greens started chipping away at that and they turned the, this safest Labor seat in the country to a marginal seat. And we saw that go backwards in the um, 2018 election. And I I strongly believe um, that, you know, being that this is you know, this is the seat in the country which records the highest percentage of progressive vote. Um, so for, for the purposes of democracy, there's a real need for there to be as much progressive choice in this seat as is possible um, because that's who our constituents in this seat are, that they're progressive people, they deserve the same right. To democratic choices what anyone in any other seat in this country does but the choice here isn't between labour and liberal it's between you know which progressive best represents your values um, and so um, given that the greens vote went backwards at the last um election because we did have finally after years of having incredibly ordinary labour candidates um in this seat, um, you know, holding this seat um, because it was taken for granted by the Labor Party. Um, yeah, we did. We did get Jed Carney um, put up as the Labor candidate, and because of that, the Greens' vote went backwards. And so I decided to stand in order to try and, um, well, firstly, to give people more of a choice in this seat, but also to to try and help this seat become a a more marginal seat again so that the voices in this seat are no longer neglected. Um, I feel that safe seats lead to neglect. The safer the seat, the more that the governments are likely to neglect the voices within it, and that's been the case for such a long time here.
0: There's a a couple of interesting things that you bring to the table, Um, one of which is the fact that you've worked in a setting, not just helping First Nations students go through university, but in a setting where you've looked at the disadvantage you look uh, that people face, and in, in the academic sector and whatever else. How great um, a motivation did what you were observing in the education sector play in making that decision? Because by uh, well, accepted, well, by accepted, the the that your engagement is to, to keep. You know, the major parties, whichever one holds Cooper, on edge, if you don't win yourself, mm. there's more and List Little's involvement in this and meets the eye.
1: Yes. What are yes. the
0: things what are the thing what are the things that uh, particularly in the in if we can start with the education sector that have um given you cause for concern? And what are the things, and then from that, what would you hope to try and change if you made it into Parliament?
1: Yeah, it's a, it was like, as you said, Tom, this is a huge driver. Like my entire career and indeed ever since I left high school, my my, you know, in some way, shape or form, I've been engaged in the higher education sector either as a student or as a worker or as someone who works for the people working within the sector as a unionist. Um, And it's been a huge driver. Like um, when I first went to university in 1997, the Dawkins reforms had only been in for, um, for a few years so, you know, fee paying had only been back in for a few years. Um, but when I, when I went, we started seeing the attacks on student unionism. And then as I was working in the sector, um, we, saw, we saw voluntary student unionism come in, which completely changed um, changed the university's environments from being a learning community into a corporate entity um you know that that students it was essentially a de- um, they were trying their hardest to make universities from a learning environment into just a degree factory where people go in one end and come out the other um, with degrees. but the problem, you know the biggest problems facing the higher education sector have been a succession of funding cuts so, um, the coalition made numerous attacks on um, on higher education. I think people will remember the the you know one hundred thousand dollar degree campaigns that were going on. So the fact that people could leave the sector if they wanted to go in and say study medicine or law with a student debt that equaled one hundred thousand dollars that was in um, in the mid two thousands. The the work choices legislation of the Howard government um, was kind of tested on higher education before it was rolled out in other places with the higher um, with the hewers the higher education workplace relations reforms. So they were trying to force workers onto individual contracts before everyone else. Um, this was in amongst the Howard government continually cutting funding. The problem was that when Labor got into parliament, um, sorry, government last time, they too made cuts to the sector. So when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister, um, $2.1 billion was cut from the higher education sector. And as a unionist um, at the time, well, sorry, as a union organiser at the time working in that, um, we had to make decisions based on based on the attacks that the sector was facing, because the more money that was cut um, from the sector, the more international students got used as cash cows to prop up the sector, and the more tenuous employment situations became within the sector. So at this point in history, um, during COVID, about 20% of people lost their jobs, in higher education, which is devastating. Um, You know, 80, over 80% in some universities of the teaching load is currently being taught by casual academics or people on tenuous contracts. Um, So there is absolutely, you know, we're at a point where there's absolutely no career pathways. For people who who wish to work within the higher education sector, and when you see other countries in the world investing money in higher education, particularly in COVID, at a time when a lot of people might wish to retrain um, after you know losing their jobs and 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 wanting to seek out different career pathways, we've got governments that continually rip funding out of higher ed. So yeah, I do as someone who wouldn't have gone like who couldn't afford to go to university um, as an Aboriginal student from a working class background I couldn't have afforded to go to university had I have not gotten an accommodation scholarship um, the idea that less people like um, less and less people like me would have the opportunity to go to universities the more that funding is cut um, was a real was a a key issue behind a lot of this for me.
0: Let me let me take this one step further. Yep. We know that um, there's you know, in in the context of higher ed and, and then broader society generally, um, thing, thing, things are tough across the board. What did what what did you observe? Whether it be while you were working as a student advisor, and then later in the union, what did you observe in terms of the way in which uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were being treated when compared to others?
1: Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's. Yeah, there's a bit of a mixed question there. And I think that what what I was really concerned about, so I just um I, I just said that the more that funding is cut, the less likely people like me are to enter the sector. Um okay. universities universities have long been um bastions for for white Privileged males—they um, uphold the Western canon, um, and the you know people people who come from more wealthy backgrounds are more likely to enter universities. Now, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people overall are more likely to come from lower SES backgrounds. Um, that's a that's a noted statistical fact. Um, so our ability to go in and and influence the sector and shift it, um, the more that funding is cut from the sector, the less likely that is to occur. And um, at this point in history, I think Indigenous students only make up about 1.3% of the student population. I think that that's the same with um Indigenous staff in the sector, only about 1.3% of the university sector, um, we're not even halfway to reaching population parity rates of participation in the sector, either as staff or students. So the more Aboriginal students and staff get into the sector, the more that we can influence things like, you know, pedagogies, um, Culturally inclusive environments. Um, you know the the safety nets that we put in place. Like the more the more that universities are forced to actually cater to these student and staff populations and change the ways that they work. Um, and for me, you know, being that Australia um, is. The home, like nowhere else in the world is this the case, but Australia is the home of the longest continuing knowledge systems in the world. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledge systems are the longest continuing knowledge systems in the world. And yet um, Australia has done everything it can to ignore those knowledge systems when, in fact, they should be front and centre Within learning environments such as universities, so the more that um, the more that we get Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students and staff through the door, the more that that happens, and the more that universities are forced to actually include the knowledge systems that are that are unique and i'd argue crucial to to um, yeah, this country moving forward.
0: This is a good point at which you segue to something else. Yeah. Um, there's an umbilical cord between uh, how many Torres Strait, sorry, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander students and graduates there are, with the capacity of any entity that is then set up to be a voice to parliament to have an adequate staff of Aboriginal and Torres Strait islanders sort of experts to be able to work within the structure to do research and all that kind of thing uh, is that something that you've reflected on as well in terms of where do where do people come from if once you get a voice to Parliament set up? Who serves it? Who works within it? Um, who does that work from within community?
1: Mm. Well, and I, I will say, Tom, that one of the, um, as an Aboriginal person, and I, I this is probably something that I should have addressed at the beginning of, um, of our chat, but... As an Aboriginal person deciding to run for the Greens, one of the biggest reasons why I did that was that the the policies on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights um, that have been written up by Greens have been written up by Black Greens, um, you know, which is, or or the First Nations Greens Caucus, um, you know, I'm using okay. short terms, yeah, and. Um, and very much um, what drew me to them, what was so attractive about the stand that the, the Black Greens have made was that they're, you know, from the Uluru Statement, um, they've taken a stance which, is, which aligns with my own, which is that rather than a voice first followed by a treaty and a truth-telling process, we need it the other way around. Um, so... So, the truth-telling process um, and the way that the higher education sector can contribute to that is through through the research, through through the changing, um, through teacher training, through the changing of um, education systems in order to incorporate Indigenous knowledges and proper Australian history and and deal with deal with what has been a massive whitewash in this country, Um, we end up with a more educated um, society. Um, Through the process of treaties, we end up with agreements and responsibilities um, between, between the Australian government and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and therefore, um, the voice I see is um, needs to come out of the treaty process. Um, so I, I feel that it should be negotiated through that process. I feel that any voice that ends up going to parliament from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people needs to be um, one that has some legislative power because we have had so many um, Aboriginal voices, sorry, I did quotation marks um, for those who can't see me, but, yeah. Um, Yeah, it needs to, you know, we've had so many voices to Parliament before, whether it was um, Abbott's Indigenous Advisory Committee or the National Congress that haven't had legislative power, and that needs to change. We need the right to have a say in the legislation that affects us as as First Peoples. So it's number one. Number two is that it needs to be democratically elected from um, from our communities. So I believe that um, the voice should be democratically elected from the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, communities in order to represent us. We need the right to have to be able to select who represents us. Um, yeah and and those are the main things that i'd say so so the part that um I see universities and education playing in that is absolutely huge because we need people to be educated we need um the population to be to be knowledgeable and ready to then be able to deal with us having a a proper seat at the table um yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, the thing, it, 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 one of the things that I find astounding, and, and you, is that as a as a country, we're good at setting up authorities. Mm. We're good at setting up statutory bodies. Um, we're good at appointing parliamentary committees, but we don't yet have something we. Yeah, you, we don't even have a, a a a body that you can plug and play to 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 run a kind of a process. Um, in the interim, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. the staff to be staffed by the, the um, you, you, yeah, the people people of the caliber of the Marshall Langtons of this world, yeah that kind of that kind of person at the apex, and then you to have people who are of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background mm. to be able to staff an entity to do the historical research to do the policy planning and to be able to do historical research to deal with what has been forgotten or never documented, to deal with... Um, uh, the contemporary research, whether it be sort of the economic, social and the political issues that people face within community. And then there's something else that needs to be able to be done, and that is to be able to turn things around quickly on on consultation with government. is there any value in establishing something in your view, that deals with things in an interim period while issues like constitution recognition, treaty and uh, any other elements are being, are being considered and sort of being laid out?
1: Look, well, maybe, maybe. I mean, you know, at the very least... Um it doesn't seem to matter what community or what um, what group I talk, you know, what Aboriginal groups across the country I talk to. Tom, um, over and over again, we hear the exact same sentiments being being um, reflected, which is that people say people saying we want a we want to be able to run our own affairs. And we want to say over our own lives. Um, and this is particularly, as, as someone who's a traditional owner from Central Australia, um, at, who has family who were impacted by the Northern Territory intervention and had to live under it and were then impacted by the Community Development Programme, um, you know, the right to have a say over their own lives up there is almost non-existent. You know, everything was controlled from how they spent their money to to what they did on a daily basis to everything else. Um, you know, I think that governments, time and time again over history, have have failed to, to engage and to consult with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, and that became significantly worse after the Howard government um, dismantled ATSIC. Um because at least within those frameworks we did have some sort of say and did have some sort of democratic choice. Um, it didn't but um but yeah you know it's kind of the one the one thing that I would caution against, I think that there is a need for some sort of interim consultative group, um, consultation process, whatever else. Um, But the one thing I would caution against is yet another um, Abbott's Indigenous Advisory Committee where you've got a group of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who a government handpicks in order to give feedback on various things, but they don't necessarily represent the the community um, more broadly, okay. um, because that same problem of not having a say in our own lives and not being properly represented just ends up being compounded um, over and over again, yeah.
0: But there's a challenge, isn't there, um, in mm. terms of reaching out to the, uh, the stakeholders across Australia? Um, because each state, each state has got, got different um, communities. Yes, from within First Nations, and trying to find a way that if you let's just take, take the state of Victoria for example, trying to find a way of giving. First Nations communities within Victoria the ability to yeah, almost have like a state-based committee of some kind that then appoints people who then sit on a Commonwealth body mm. in order to be able to send feedback up, take feedback back, so there's a continuous line of communication. It's not that easy to do. no. <laughs>
1: no, no, it, it, it's. I mean, you know, no, it's not. And to be honest, I think it'll be. It'll take a bit of time to get right. But that's also why I think that um, treaties are so like are so incredibly crucial to the future of this country. Because if there's some sort of agreement reached, um, you know, and if that happens at a clan based and we get bodies, that um, you know, through those sorts of negotiations, Aboriginal people and Torres, sorry, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people get some sort of say in how we're represented, how those bodies are constructed and what responsibilities the governments have to us as First Peoples, then we have more of a chance of making sure that these bodies are reflective, um, are democratic, you know, um, do represent these communities. Because as you say, Tom, like, we're dealing with over 200 First Nations um, groups across the country. There are a lot of us. Um, So, but there are ways to ensure that that the voices are heard from, from, you know, one coast to the other if we, do, if we get it right through a proper negotiated process.
0: Hmm. The, uh, and I'm mindful of the time you've been generous uh, <laughs> with your time this afternoon. Uh, the, the interesting thing is you're standing in the election at a time when the Greens, particularly in Victoria, have made a specific point of putting up a a Senate ticket mm. that is completely indigenous. How important is that?
1: I it's so important. You know, <laughs> it's um the yeah I I I've got the reason why I'm laughing a little bit Tom is um my my colleague Adam Frogley is is on that Senate ticket. So so you know Indigenous unionists represent <laughs> where we're, we're there but but you know one of the things with the senate ticket um is that three of the people three of the four people on it are traditional owners from Victoria and and that to me you know is is perfect it makes sense um I I think the idea that um that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are traditional owners within within a particular state or territory can then go into the Senate and represent the entire state um yeah, it makes an awful lot of sense, but also, I never thought that I would see that that option happen in Victoria ever, and yet here it is, we can actually see an all-senate ticket made up of Indigenous people, and the diversity of those Indigenous people is extraordinary. Like the, the various skills that they bring to the table, the age that they bring, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's it's really important. I I um, never thought I'd see it, and it's, you know, to be standing alongside that. As someone who's running in a House of Representatives um, race, is is incredible. It is incredible.
0: What are the other we've spoken a bit about some of the challenges in the First Nations space? Mm-hmm. What are some of the other issues that push your buttons that you'll yep. be you'll be wanting to to grapple with?
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, and we've spoken a bit about higher education too, so I won't go back over that. But no, I mean, you know, that's <laughs> that's a big ticket for me. Um, look, there's, I, one of the benefits that I have um, as someone who has lived in this seat for such a long time is knowing that. This is an incredibly diverse seat. That it's a multicultural seat. That um, you know, it has proud working class traditions. Um, you know, yeah, that that there's a um, there's a high migrant population. There's a high queer population, um, and that the people in this seat um, care incredibly about about the climate emergency and want the governments to act upon that in strong and decisive ways as quickly as possible. So so things that stand out to me are definitely strong, decisive action on climate change, on land rejuvenation, on investments in sustainable energy technologies and um, energy efficiency technologies. you know the action on the climate emergency more broadly to ensure that future generations do have a future um, things like refugee rights, you know I'm a first nations person i I've seen I've seen successive governments treat um, people who come to this country seeking asylum absolutely appallingly denying them of all human rights and locking them up in in um detention centers for years on end and it's you know i it is it's just I, i don't even have the words for how much it distresses and disgusts me that that our country can treat people that way um so i want humane action in the spaces um, of, of um, refugee rights and asylum seekers. It's not illegal to seek asylum, and I would very much want to be, you know, I want this country to change um, so so that if people come here seeking asylum, that they're processed as quickly as possible and they are able to get on with their lives Within our communities, um, as quickly as possible, as well, not like what not like what's been going on. Um, you know, Indigenous rights is always at the forefront. Um, oh, I'm trying to, um, that like it, as a worker, as a unionist, um, the fact that. Most of us pay more tax than what the massive um, corporations do is, is extraordinary to me. So I want corporations taxed. I want billionaires and the incredibly wealthy taxed properly so that our social safety net is bolstered and we have things like mental and dental health covered by Medicare we have more public housing out there, we can increase thing, we can increase all of our pensions so that so that those who are on various pensions can actually live a proper life. Um, yeah, the strengthening of our social safety net is crucial, particularly after COVID and seeing how many people in this electorate are struggling. Um, we, we do have a lot of people that lost their jobs. We have a lot of artists, a lot of higher education workers and a lot of hospital workers in this area, and they they lost their income during COVID. So social safety nets and bolstering those, to me, is just critical. Yeah.
0: In, in the best of worlds, we can put it that way, you end up, you end up walking through the doors of Parliament. Parliament has a curious culture. Um, question time is sort of the intellectual's equivalent of a UFC bout. <laughs> yes. What, um, what are the things that if you could wave wave a wand in the air, what are the things about the culture of Parliament that you want to see change?
1: Well, I definitely want. <laughs> Um, this is so basic, but I want our representatives to be representative of the community like and they're not they're not um Parliament is still dominated by by white straight men who are able bodied and um Australia is significantly more diverse than that. We need more women in parliament. We need more people of colour in parliament. We definitely need more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in parliament. And, you know, as, as you said, look, anyone who's sat there and watched question time has just seen some appalling <laughs> behaviours go on on the floor when when. When what we're actually debating, or what 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 people are debating in those spaces, are the future of people in this country. You know, um, I'm tired of this culture of, of well, it literally is one-upmanship um, and and bullying. And um, you know, the more that comes out about those bullying cultures within Parliament, the more urgent It is to actually address them and ensure that these are spaces where um, voices, you know, that represent our communities and are diverse enough to represent our communities can be heard. Um, There is one thing that, one controversial thing that I'm going to throw in the mix, Tom, and that is that, um, you know, whilst I, um, oh, sorry. Many years ago, I, I did write an article for Eureka Street and I highlighted the Section 44 debate and the fact that we we got to a period in time where a lot of, um, a lot of white parliamentarians were losing their seats in parliament because they held dual citizenship. And, you know, whilst it might have been funny to see people like Fraser Anning and, you know, and... Um, a good old um, oh, what's his name? The national, sorry, I've just I've covered blanked there, um, lose their seats. You know, whilst it might have been funny, um, that rule that that dual citizens can't hold um, seats in parliament was a hangover and is a hangover from the White Australia policy. It was installed in the constitution to stop migrants of colour from from anywhere by New Zealand from running in Australian Parliament. And I think that needs to change. I think that, you know, not only do we need to be more diverse, but we also need through, we, we need to change things so that we have, you know, a more global outlook rather than such an insular little wide Australian outlook. And changing that section of the constitution to me is crucial in that.
0: We've covered a lot of ground, um, but and, and uh, you've been sort of very generous with your time. People want to know more about you and the Greens, and and what's happening in the lead up to May the twenty-first when the election is held. Where do they go?
1: <laughs> so, um, if you want to know more about my campaign. Um, my campaign website is pretty simply um, little so libldle.greens dot, dot org dot au. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, so Celeste Little Greens on Facebook. Um, yeah, and and on Instagram again under that handle. Um, my Twitter presence. Is, is still my own so as a as someone who's had a long media career when i when I ran for the greens, I said, no I'm just keeping my Twitter account and you know um, I can be whilst I talk policy on it, I also just very much stay myself within that space. So if you want to see me in action um, at utopiana will get me on um, Twitter as well. You'll get
0: your dog on there too.
1: <laughs> It'll get my dog as well. My dog, Stella, is a frequent um, frequent guest appearer on my Twitter account.
0: <laughs> okay. I've been talking to Celeste Liddell. She's a candidate in the May 21 federal election for the Australian Greens in the seat at Cooper. Uh, Celeste, thank you so much for, for talking with me today.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Tom.
0: Thank you.